Hey friends, this is Palm Bear, bringing you what we think is an apt episode for Valentine's Day. We were lucky enough to be in the Big Apple for this one, since I was at an unconference for people trying to figure out how best to engage others with science. For those of you into this kind of thing, you can go to sciout18.org to find out what we were up to. But while we were there, Dr. Bianca Jones-Marlin of the Zuckerman Institute was kind enough to come meet us on a Sunday morning at nearby Le Monde. So thanks to the staff there for looking after us. Here's our chat about love and trauma with the oxytocin queen. Cause I can't feel a thing. No, I can't feel a thing. No, not even when I sing. Morning, folks. This is your two scientists crew coming from a very drizzly day in New York. And we're here today with... Dr. Bianca Jones-Marlin. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, we're very pleased that you came out to speak to us today. Thank you. Um, so as we've done a little bit of reading about your your background and we realized you are a postdoc at the Zuckerman Institute at Columbia. Yes. Is that correct? So tell us how you got here. What's your, your background? What did you train in? Yes, yeah, so my, my undergrad degree was actually in adolescent education. I dual majored biology and adolescent education. Mm-hmm. I was fairly convinced that I wanted to go into science teaching. Uh, I loved my students when I student taught. Uh, I loved the classes, loved teaching kids about science. And so I was pretty gung-ho about doing that. Granted, when I was an undergrad, I also saw a poster on the wall for um, free tuition if you work in a lab. I was like, I could change my future options based on this. Um, and so I went to this program uh, that wound up changing my life. It allowed me to work in a lab in fungal genetics, which is not what I do now, but I learned lab technique, I learned, learned lab etiquette. Um, and paralleling that in neurobio, I mean, that and biology and teaching, I realized I like learning how people learn mm-hmm. more so than teaching. And um, that helped curtail my, my path to applying to a PhD program. Fantastic. Um, but your research now is uh, quite specific and you're looking at how kind of the brain adapts uh, in response to certain hormones and um, how both parents and the, the child themselves are affected, right? Yes, and so that I think comes from a very uh, special place in my heart. Uh, my parents, who are awesome, are foster parents. So they're my biological parents and they're foster parents. So I had the blessed opportunity to grow up with a lot of different siblings from a lot of different backgrounds, um, all separately teaching me such beautiful intricacies of life. And I found it really intriguing that they could all come from different places and still like be my siblings, but have different reactions to different things, different reactions to different experiences. Uh, and I think I, I didn't realize it then, but I always had a keen interest in that. I think that led me into education, but moreover led me into neuro and studying what I study now, mm-hmm. parental behaviors and yes. environment. So tell us what it is you study now, specifically. So my PhD work was on maternal behavior and how when an animal, I looked at animals because they're mm-hmm. easier to look at, um, when a mom gives birth to an animal, to her, her baby, she actually changes up her, her responses to it. So a virgin usually, if she hears, we call them virgins, but like, I don't know if they've had sex or not. They're just like, <laughs> they just haven't had babies. Um, and so when a virgin hears the sound of a baby crying, she's like, it needs to stop. And so she either will run away, ignore it, run to the other side of the cage, or she'll quiet it by cannibalizing it. Woo! Yes. But 
after she gets impregnated and then like I don't know her skin is glowing and she gives birth then everything changes and instead of running away or going to cannibalize it she'll take care of it she'll bring it back to the nest if it's outside of the nest and so what we studied um, when I was at NYU in Robert Frumke's lab was that oxytocin which is known as the love drug the love hormone it's released during uterine contractions it's released during feeding when the mouse feeds and what it does is it changes the way the hearing centers in the brain respond oh. to the pup crying. So instead of responding aberrant, it starts to respond in a time lock manner and it makes the message, it changes the message of the sound of the baby crying. Oh, that's fairly intense. Yeah. Um, so you also work on how trauma can affect the offspring. And I wonder kind of with the recent stories of like refugees and things being held in cages, whether this was particularly pertinent to your research. Yeah, so I think about that often, and I have uh, the opportunity now to work with um, some undergraduates and um, an amazing technician, and we talk about how our work is relevant to our current current state right now in the U.S. and in the world. Um, yes, we look at how trauma, something that we can't always control, affects kids and grandkids of those traumatized. And so there has been work in humans looking at, um, for example, the Dutch hunger winter, so people who went through a series of um, a, a time of famine post-World War II, and their kids and their grandkids, particularly the males, their kids and grandkids suffered from different metabolic issues. Mm -hmm. They suffered from high blood pressure, diabetes, and what scientists concluded was that this was happening because they were preparing their body for a place of famine mm -hmm. when they were in a place of plenty. Yeah. There was some memory that was being maintained to the kids and even to the grandkids that said, you probably will be starved, although they knew and their parents even knew that that wasn't the case. Even their grandparents were only starved for a period of nine months, yeah. but yet that was such a traumatic experience that that m metabolic change has been maintained. Uh, but we're looking at it along the lines of um, more emotional and uh, mental trauma as opposed mm -hmm. to metabolic trauma. Yeah. So that's actually the Dutch case study oh, yes, is quite a famous yes, one. Yes, and that's uh, the Chinese famine. Um, also, it's been looked at in post-Holocaust survivors in black American population, population that have, been, have gone through many traumas, but looking at the metabolic issues, mm -hmm. how those are maintained. Yeah. So I was forwarded on an article by a friend recently about the fact that... Um, Genetics is far more dominant in shaping us as who we are than environment. And I found this mm. very curious um, because certainly we've been told it's, it's a huge combination of our genes versus what we experience. Um, what would you say to that? Because I don't think your research says necessarily that it's all genetic, right? Yes, and I guess this is the, uh, the beauty in research, but also sometimes the problem. I, I have certain convictions and I want <laughs> certain things to... Um, to reveal how I feel about the world. And mm -hmm. I really believe that people can change. I believe that the brain is always changing. And I showed that mm -hmm. through my, my research with oxytocin. Even as adults, we have the ability to change our brain. Yeah. And I believe that the environment can shape us. And we, in turn, can shape the environment based on what we learn. I'm really team, like, plasticity. Yeah. And with that being said, of course, nature and nurture, there's a balance. But what I study it's not essentially nature as in something that's so hardwired that can't be changed. Mm -hmm. I study something called epigenetics. So mm -hmm. epigenetics means above, epi means above the genome. Yep. So the genome itself does not change, that stays the same, that's just canon. But things around the genome allow genes to be read more or less or more quickly, and those genes lead to 
this, the subsequent either metabolic issues or emotional issues or behaviors that we're discussing. Yeah. So uh, we were just chatting before you, or rather as you arrived, and you showed up with your own small person. Yes, I did. <laughs> I have so, a small person, yes. So tell us how much your work relates to kind of you yourself as a mother now. Oh, man. So ah, it's terrifying. <laughs> it's what it is. Um, during my graduate work, I, 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 wasn't, I, I did not have a small child. Um, and I went around the US and around other countries speaking about maternal behavior and how becoming a mother changes the brain and it changes behavior and this is now you know scientific a, a, a solid scientific discovery and then I had a child <laughs> and I realized a how cool is it that I was able to experience that in real time um, the doctors had such a headache with me because <laughs> um, usually when you when you go into labor they try to give you they try to give you oxytocin a synthetic mm -hmm. version, version uh -huh. called pitocin yeah um, to help speed the labor along. Yep. And my doctor, my OB, was like, she called herself the queen of Pitocin. And I was like, tee hee hee, I'm the queen of Oxytocin. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I told her I did not want it at all. I wanted to experience Oxytocin in real time. And I could tell she wanted to just like <laughs> shake me, but she couldn't because I was pregnant and she was so frustrated. Um, but it was cool to see, see nature happen on its own in real time and see Oxytocin work in real time. I was really excited to, uh, to experience that. It also meant that my labor was four days long what? instead of the, I don't know, one sixteenth of that it probably should have been. Good um, so if you have the option for a Pitocin, guys, <laughs> take it. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, I, and I, I see her operate now. And I think very often, like, was I stressed during pregnancy? There were a lot of social, political things uh, going on in the world. And mm -hmm. I remember being like I need to calm down because I'm pregnant I know that I could be inducing epigenetic changes and I don't want my child to have a heightened sense of anxiety am I having a heightened sense of anxiety oh my goodness what am I doing and it it's a lot but also I believe that she's able to navigate the world learn from the world and change I think mm -hmm. it really does reflect my work and the same way yeah so you are a perfect example of a doctor being the worst kind of patient oh I, I, you said perfect example so I'll take it <laughs> <laughs> I like that, ever the optimist. <laughs> so one of the things you've done, you do a lot of kind of science communication now, yeah, reach yourself. And one of the things I know you've done is Story Collider. Yes. Right. So um, I think many people don't necessarily see this as a legitimate form of psychom, as we like oh. to call it in the, the, the practice. Can you tell us your reasons for doing it? First of all, tell us a little bit about your story. Not to spoil oh, it, we'll share the okay. link. But Story Collider is so essential, A, to what we do, and I think to how, how people who aren't in science, or so quote-unquote call them the public, see us. We spend many a time, many our days, many a year in lab, behind closed doors, and then after six years, we come out with a paper, and sometimes the press catches it, sometimes it doesn't. And it's, it's essential for us to be able to, A, like, it's cathartic for us to be able to tell our story as scientists and as people, um, and B, I think it's important for the... The, for humanity to know that we all we are also people who are passionate about questions and we love the scientific process and I think Erin uh, Barker who is one of the uh, producers at Story Collider said it in a way that made me it gave me chills she's like she wants to be around scientists and like hearing our stories makes uh, makes her support scientists and it just made me feel so proud to think that like me talking about my life and traumatic things that happened to me mm -hmm. or funny things that happened to me could actually change the way people view what I do it's 100% a legitimate form of 
science and science communication, and it's essential. I'm so happy that people took, stepped up to do it. Yeah, because I mean, frankly, if anyone looks at a picture of the two of us, we are not what people think of when you first hear the word scientist. And that has to change because yeah. we've dedicated our lives to science. We are scientists. Right. No one can argue that. You know. It's been a while. Yeah. Like, I've been doing this shit for 20 years. <laughs> <Exactly>. So, um, <laughs> Like, I'm not a scientist. Try me. Like, <laughs> Quite. Um, one of the things that you bring up in the course of your story is how people see you. So, I mean, yeah. this is all working on the same theme. Yes. But I, I believe the title of the, the <laughs> that particular podcast is It's Because I'm Black, right? Yes. I didn't have a control in the title. And when I first saw it come out, I freaked out. And I was like, oh, no, people are going to think it's this is because I'm black. Wait, that's exactly what I spoke about. And I think that's okay. And like, yeah. I, I took the same like, you know, scared, negative approach that you know, I assumed other people took of me when I started grad school. I've had the amazing opportunity to grow up in a diverse high school, um, a very diverse university I went to. I grew up in public high school in Long Island, centralized up high school. Went to St. John's University, super culturally diverse. And when I went to uh, NYU for my graduate work, it was, that was not the case. Mm -hmm. And it was the first day that I started in grad school. We had a happy hour. Although I knew, I always know. Like, you don't need to tell people they're the only black person in the room when they're the only black person. Yeah. You know, we know this. <laughs> um, but yet someone took the initiative to remind me. And I think it just put me in a, a odd spiral the first few years of graduate school where yeah. I'm coming in. We all obviously have strong enough credentials to be here because they accepted all of us. And yet, you know, I was still placed as someone who's only here because of something I have no control of. Um, and it took a while for me to understand that people are going to make these assumptions regardless of what I do. So I just need to do what I'm good at. Mm -hmm. And so at this point now, when I walk into a room and I'm the only black scientist, the only black female, sometimes the only female scientist in the room, I know I'm there because I do great work. Mm -hmm. In fact, and black is icing on the cake, so hey. <laughs> Awesome. Um, you actually work for a Nobel laureate, right? I do, I do. My, my PI is amazing. His name is Richard Axel. Um, he pretty much discovered a few things. One, something called viral transduction, essentially how like viruses um, do payloads that are essential for HIV research, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and B, he discovered how we smell, how the nose works. Um, he, along with his uh, postdoc at the time, Linda Buck, won the Nobel Prize for understanding that. Very oh, cool. Brilliant man, hilarious guy. <laughs> I enjoy working for him. So we actually had a question from someone online. Great. So the the account is OMG Parenting. Okay. And I I'm believe there with it's, you. <laughs> it's it's run by a, a nurse. So. So the question is, like in an adverse childhood experience, does the effect on future children differ, or is it greater if the trauma was chronic and/or repeated? I think that's an excellent question. So is the trauma more, is the trauma stronger or the prevalence of the trauma stronger if it's a one-time trauma versus a chronic trauma? And from what we have seen, a one-time trauma is enough to elicit responses, elicit changes in the parent and also at least in the children. Mm -hmm. One-time trauma. And so if the trauma is going to be greater based on continual experiences, we can't say based on um, our, our research. We do know that going back to the human research, the Dutch hunger winter was about nine months. So that's a nine month chronic trauma, trauma but it wasn't a lifetime. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a lifetime. And maybe this 
may be important because the body may learn to adapt over a longer period of time. I really can't answer the question. It's a question I wish I could, and I, I think I, my questions need to, um, my scientific questions need to lead in that direction. Mm -hmm. So, great question. Thank you for that. And this is why we like scientists to be able to speak to a broader public because you wouldn't necessarily get those kinds of ideas exactly. or appreciate that this is something that people want to know about. Oh, so, thank you. Yeah. So regarding SciComm, we actually found you because you were at our Taste of Science Festival. Yes, that was so great. How was that? It was such a blast. And there was like a quiz at the end and people got really competitive. <laughs> and like people made their own screen names and the screen names were like Oxytocin Babe, Oxytocin Dude. And I was like, guys, you liked my talk. Yeah, <laughs> it was great. Um, yeah, I, our New York team had, a, they clearly had a blast even setting it up this year because they had their own little images for each yes. event and... It was very cute. Um, so while we're talking something about something a bit more fun, you, yes. you clearly get asked a lot on the news about the love drug. Yes. Do you get pulled in a lot just for that reason? I mean, it's yes, with no complaints, because we are social beings. And I think everyone knows that, although the things I do in lab are very intricate. I do something called whole cell in vivo physiology for my mm -hmm. PhD, which means I record from single neurons in a live animal and see how, seeing how it responds to external stimuli. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But when you take a step back, I'm studying social behavior. And without society, without us interacting with each other, we are null and void. We're mm -hmm. like, I don't know, the tree that falls in the forest and does anyone hear it? I guess, but who cares <laughs> if, it, if it's by itself? Yeah. You know? And so I think people are attracted to the humanity part of science and that can't be separated. That's why science com SciComm is so important because science is humanity. We are science, mm -hmm. it's totally intertwined. Um, and so, yeah, I get pulled aside and ask about the love hormone. I ask about I also the whole parent thing. Like, yeah. so my mom was kind of a jerk. And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't do human studies. I'm sorry, <laughs> I can't answer that. I don't know who your mom is. I wish, but she's my boss. Like, <laughs> um, well, I'll give a, a poster presentation and I'll have a woman come up and they're like, truthfully, I go into Starbucks and I hear another baby crying and I start lactating. And I'm like, that's 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 so cool because that's science that's oxytocin yeah. working in real time you heard the baby cry it's acting on oxytocin in your brain and releasing milk from your breast that's cool and I so know the mechanism that's <laughs> awesome that's uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm obviously kind of very unexpected for the poor woman in question yeah, exactly but um so this this goes back I guess to your animal studies where you were saying that the hearing changes in yes. order for them to Yes, or the representation of the sound. Mm -hmm. The sound is okay. still the same, and that's the amazing part. Yeah. The same cue, the same message, changes its relevance based on experience. That's how amazing. amazing. It's the same exact cry, but based on how you've experienced it, it changes. And in the same way of what we're doing now with the transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, mm -hmm. something like the sound of a, a loud shock can make you jump or make you go into a panic attack. Mm -hmm. Based on your experience, that yep. same cue has a different response. And that's, that's beautiful, I think. Yeah. I guess that's the kind of thing that underlies PTSD. Exactly. Awesome. So what does... Oh, we're, we're, I shouldn't say exactly. Uh, we're, yeah. we're hoping to delineate that, but yes. Yeah. Um, so what does oxytocin actually do? If you were to sum up its kind of main features... I'll give you this, like the scientific and the slightly less scientific answer. Yep. Oxytocin changes the way neurons fire. So neurons are the main communication in the brain. There are two main types, ones that excite, so they're the ones that fire, ones that inhibit, the ones that, like, they're like the nuns in the back of the bus, I usually call them, like, quiet down kids, and the kids in the front of the bus are the excitatory neurons, like, oh, it's so much fun. And so oxytocin changes the, res the conversation between the excitatory cells and the inhibitory cells. So there's a sort of... um 
uniform control that mm-hmm. oxytocin does. So that's like the scientific question. It's called excitation and inhibitory balance, EI balance. On a bigger scheme, what does oxytocin do? It changes the brain to make the animal survive and make its offspring survive. So in mice, it's essential that they bond with their children for their children to survive. So if the baby's like, oh, you need, I need you to survive, I'm gonna feed off of you, and then it's gonna release oxytocin, it's gonna perpetuate our species. Wow. And as like dry as that is, like it's kind of the same thing in humans, mm-hmm. you know, like we need each other to survive and nature yeah. has us set up well for that. Very cool. Um, and I like the, the way that was summed up as well. That was very neat. Um, so David has a question, which is, Excellent. if we understand the impact of stress on parents impacting their kids, is there something we can use that for other than making sure people don't undergo traumatic situations? I like to think that um, my question, is, as well as others, other people's questions, other scientists' questions, can go two ways. There's something broken. There's something wrong. We need to fix it. There's something fine. How do we make it better? And so I think it can, bo- it can go both ways. If there was a traumatic experience that now you are suffering from, although you didn't never experienced it, it was your parent or your grandparent, that's a burden on you. That's an onus on you to, to have to navigate life as well as you can. In the same way, if you didn't have trauma, but you had like an amazing life, an amazing experience, and your grandparents did as well, how do we inject that into the milieu? If there's a way for a memory to go from a human being or a mammal or an animal somehow to the sperm and then that memory is maintained in the sperm and goes to the second generation, that's an amazing mechanism. How is that happening? Mm-hmm. And what can we encode in our whole, in- and this is like going a little bit sci-fi, but what can we encode in our whole entire species? Like, Can we have the whole history of our species in said sperm and egg and maintain that through generations? Is that Whoa. what's actually already happening? If we can encode memory, you know how great our, our PEM drives will be? <laughs> like we will, the cloud is nothing compared to what nature can do, if that's yeah, the case. Yeah, yeah. And so how to encode memory in something that's not necessarily the brain to be passed on is, is definitely something we can, we can take and go, go amazing directions with. Yeah, absolutely. It's, there are so many crazy fields of research right now. I love it. I love, and a, a lot of it we learn from meeting our guests because... Even as scientists, we don't necessarily think about what other people are doing. Exactly. I was like, that's somebody else's problem. <laughs> and, I'm a, and I'm a neuroscientist. You're a neuroscientist. Yeah. Awesome. I, but you know, what really throws people off is that I'm a neuroscientist who doesn't work on the brain. And they're like, oh, uh, you're a neuron sci- neur- neural scientist. Yeah. So we work on the sensory nervous system. Awesome. What form? Uh, we are looking at the innovation of the lungs and the respiratory system. Cool. In the, in the respiratory Awesome. Yeah. That's super important because if you can't breathe, you can't like, yeah, think. Yeah, you kind of die. So, like, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of required. We need you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Um, oh, can I ask yes. you a question? Yeah. So like, oh gosh. It's funny. When scientists ask questions, I don't know if anyone else ever feels like this as a scientist. Do you feel like silly asking another scientist a question when you know it's going to be really basic? Like, I don't really know your field. So I'm gonna ask something that's super like. Basic. I do this all the time. Okay. I've gotten used to it because as a result of this podcast, I ask stupid questions yeah. all the time, and sometimes there are things that I just completely get wrong or I've remembered wrong. Like I couldn't remember whether megalodon was a real thing or I was confusing <laughs> it with Sharknado. So yeah, I, I screw okay, up. Okay, I feel all the a lot better about that. Thank you. So okay, so I should say you know when you run, I don't run often, but I just started. I just started. I was like, I'm in my thirties. Start running, and like so your lungs start to hurt when you run. Is that actually like 
is that actual pain in your lungs? Like, are there actual inner, like actual nerve endings in your lungs that are saying like they hurt because you exercise because you're so out of shape? Like, what is that when your lungs hurt from exercising? So I'm not sure because technically the what we call the nociceptors, the nerves that yes. detect that pain, uh, in the lungs they don't detect pain. Uh, so something just that out of shape. They also never grow nociceptors, and they're like. <laughs> no, I don't think so because I, I experienced that too. I hope okay. that I'm not that out of shape. Um, but yeah, so the, what we're studying there is the result of like the, the chemicals that we inhale. And uh, oh, no way. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the way we're looking at it is how... Oh, my God. I'm, I'm being questioned in my own podcast. <laughs> is that wrong? I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's, it's great. Intriguing. Like, no one's ever done this before. Um, yeah, so the idea is that you have uh, the sensors, yes. which we refer to as ion channels, the specific proteins that are triggered by the particles that you inhale. And what those things can do then is they can either signal back to the brain um, to say, oh yeah, there might be something going on here. And you can get a reverse signal to the lungs to say either you need to start secreting something to get rid of this, um, which happens obviously in the case of illness and so on. Or, and what we're studying is when this starts to happen inappropriately in okay. diseases like asthma and COPD, okay, yes, where yes, obviously yes. they're causing the muscles in your lungs to spasm inappropriately. Yes, when they're not supposed yeah. to. Yeah. So, oh, um, yeah, they're, they're technically not there for pain. And so you, you also have the, the receptors that are, you have in your skin for touch. They're, those are there yeah. in your lungs. And again, okay. you, don't, you don't want those receptors in there to be touching things. Yes. like you get stuff in your lungs, you die. Yeah. Um, so those those are there just to kind of sense that your lungs are expanding and contracting and that you're breathing wow. and so on. So. so if I run in like the forest as opposed to like New York City, do you think it would be? Probably. It would be very different. Less painful. Yeah, because the, the ion channel that I study is called um, trip A1. So you I know trip A1. Cool. Yeah. It's like hot sauce. Hot, is that? No, hot sauce is trip V1. Oh. oh you see? Up on my science. Okay. Yeah. So this is the wasabi one. Wasabi. I know it's something yeah. hot. Okay. Um, except it's it's really, we or like to say promiscuous. Oh. So it's not triggered by. It has fewer thing. oxytocin receptors because that leads to promiscuity. Oh, maybe. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So no, it's, it's triggered by. Um, Basically, a particular type of chemical that we call an electrophile. So it's attracted to okay. electrons. Um, and yeah, so these, these chemicals are in pollution, cigarette ah. smoke, um, products of inflammation. And so it makes oh, sense man. that it responds to all of these things and your lungs protect you through that mechanism. And I'm a New Yorker, like through and through. So I'm just like SOL. Oh, yeah. It's, okay. it, and this is why these kind of respiratory diseases are on the rise because pollution yeah. is woo, skyrocketing. Cool. It's not the only reason we need to stop using fossil fuels. Bam. So, you know, everybody thinks about the environment, but we also need to the do environment it for my lungs. basic health. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so does this mean I stop running or I move? Oh. I'm going to go stop running. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that sounds like the easier option, right? <laughs> well, thank you for letting me ask that. No, absolutely. Um, cool. Yes, so <laughs> we're probably going to say... Uh, Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for inviting me to do this. And so, in order to get my experiments to work, I had to have virgin mice 
And these mice had to be actual virgins, not like they didn't sleep with anyone, like actual virgins. And so I had a cage of virgins, and over the span of five days, I'm doing the experiment, and I realized they're getting like pretty obese, like they're getting really big. And so by day five, I'm like, you guys, it's a little bit funny. So I flipped them over, and I realized like, oh no, oh no. These are not five morbidly obese virgins. These are four knocked up pregnant mice and one fat male. And so I had accidentally knocked up my whole cage of mice and like given this, this poor male mouse a run for his money. And so I had to go up to my, my boss at the time and say like, hi, I de-virginized all the mice for the experiment, I'm sorry. And it's like, that's an awkward conversation to have. And moreover, I then had to go and send an email to the whole department asking for virgins to like, Finish my experiment. People still make fun of me to, th to this day, like <laughs> Bianca's virgin email. And so, yeah, got the whole cage knocked up. doing electrophysiology it's really hard to get a clean response so like I'm recording from single cells in a brain the animal's alive so it moves it breathes um, it feels no pain it's anesthetized it's actually on something called ketamine so it's like tripping really hard like it's, it's fine um, but I'm not fine because I, I need to get these cells and so one month goes by two months go by three months almost four months I've never gotten a cell and so I was getting really frustrated my boss was like you know try something new try touching this and nothing was working uh, so I found a guy down the hall that was a slice physiologist. So he recorded from brain slices. These are a little bit more stable, so you can see the responses, and they're a lot cleaner. They look like the textbook responses. So he came into lab, and he was like, let me take a look at this. Um, okay, go back a month ago. Go back two months ago. And he pointed out that the whole time I was actually recording cells. They just weren't this beautiful, perfect like textbook cell. And so I was like, like tears rolled up my eyes, like this whole time I've been collecting data. And then I married him. And now he's the father of my child. So um. about the love drug when Bianca's work clearly has important implications for those suffering from trauma. You can find out more about her research on her website biancajonesmarlin.com. On the lighter side though she's talked at many events including our Taste of Science Festival and NYC. Our team there has regular events including one tonight. Head to our website tasteofscience.org to find out more about what science related fun they might have in store. While you're doing that, enjoy listening out this track, Soul in My Body, kindly donated by local New York artist Pink Clouds. Find out more about them in the episode notes on our website. Until the next time, we hope you have a great week.
Oh, yes, the dirt stripe. Oh, man. So I had one, but then you told me about this guy who crapped a suit, and I want to make sure I... <laughs> I like mine. You know? 